The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Do not use the show's content as the basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick Edelman is an investment advisor representative of Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor which furnishes this program and also a registered principal of EF Legacy Securities, an affiliated broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a weekend to you here on the Rick Edelman Show. No, I, you know, I normally say happy weekend to you, but my goodness gracious, going from Harvey to now Irma with astonishing wildfires in California, um, it's hard to be happy about too much of anything right now. I've got a couple of important messages that I want to share with you today about what's going on. First, let's talk about the natural disasters that we are experiencing. Hurricane Irma, as you have no doubt heard, is now hit Category 5, the most intense hurricane on record. It's the most powerful hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean ever recorded. Maximum winds over 185 miles per hour, some of them clocking in at 200, we're told. And uh, we're seeing devastation throughout the Caribbean. And uh, as I record this, Florida is bracing for Irma's arrival. So I want to talk with you a little bit, though, about what happens next. As those in Houston and other parts of Texas, as well as Louisiana, are already experiencing Harvey is gone, And we're now dealing with the aftermath and what do you do? So I want to give you some advice regarding the days and weeks and months following the natural disaster. When you return to your home, survey your property for damage. Immediately contact your insurance agent or insurance company so you can begin the claims process. You'll be assigned a claims adjuster right away who will work with you. If your home is uninhabitable, Your typical homeowner's policy or renter's insurance policy, you do have them, right? I mean, that's the advice we've been giving you forever on this radio show, and we give to all of our clients to make sure you have proper homeowner's coverage, renter's insurance as well. They will pay for your housing while your home is rebuilt. You don't have to come out of pocket yourself. You need to keep all your receipts for hotels and restaurants for reimbursement. Now, keep in mind... The policy will pay for your expenses over and above your normal living expenses. So it will pay for your hotel room. It'll pay for some meals, but not all of them, because the attitude is you got to eat anyway. So the policies will pay for expenses you incur over and above normal expenses, and that's why it's important that you keep all receipts. You also need to maintain a home inventory, and if you have followed our advice over the years, you took photographs of everything in your house. You made a video of everything in your house. If you didn't do that, you need to create one right now. Think room by room and write down everything that was in that room, furniture, accessories, clothing, artwork, electronics, housewares, jewelry, linens, toiletries, stuff that was in drawers, everything you can think of. You need to write it down. And if you haven't done this and you are not in the path of Harvey or Irma, you need to do that right now this weekend. Take your smartphone and walk around your house and photograph everything. I mean everything. 
because the only way the insurance company will reimburse you is if they know you had something needing reimbursement. You can't just say, I owned clothing. Photograph your closets so they can see how much clothing you had. Ideally, you've got receipts of all of the money you spent on all of that clothing so that they can reimburse you for the actual money you'd spent. And if your policy is the way it ought to be, it'll cover replacement cost. Because cost of replacing something is often higher than what you would have paid to buy it way back when. Very often they'll only give you money for the current value. And you know that the sofa ain't worth what it was worth the day you bought the sofa. So having replacement cost is really important. Also, a lot of folks don't realize that many insurance policies for homeowners and renters will provide you reimbursement for removing the debris. So talk to your insurance agent about that. Now, keep in mind, if volunteers haul out the stuff out of the house or a charity or the government, you don't get compensated. In other words, if you incur a cost to have your stuff cleared out of the house, you'll be reimbursed for that. And don't be surprised if you get several checks from your insurance company. They're going to give you different checks for different losses, for living expenses, for the cost of rebuilding, a separate reimbursement check for structures that are detached, like a garage. Uh, you'll get another separate check for the contents of your home and personal possessions. So don't assume that the first check you get is the only check you're going to get. Have open communication with your insurance adjuster and your insurance agent about all of this. And what about the mortgage? Should you keep paying on the mortgage for a house that no longer exists? has been swept away by floods or is clearly uninhabitable? Yes, keep paying the mortgage because the mortgage company has a financial interest in that house. And when they arrange with your insurance company to get that house rebuilt, you don't want to have them rebuilding a house that they're going to kick you out of for non-payment. So make sure you continue to make the mortgage payment and that you pay your property taxes as well. In fact, some mortgage companies will not allow you to receive the money from the insurance company. Some mortgage companies will want the insurance company to give the money to them, held in escrow, so they can dole it out to the contractor as the home gets rebuilt. This is a protection process to avoid fraud. You know, you don't want to write a, you know, write a check for a couple hundred grand to a contractor up front and have him never rebuild the house. So work closely, not just with your insurance company, but with your mortgage company. And if you have a financial planner, involve them as well. Like everybody else in Houston, our offices were closed, uh, but that doesn't mean our financial advisors are not available. The phones are still working. The computers are still working. We're able to work off-site. Our uh, headquarters office and our home team is available as needed as well. And this is the kind of service and support you should be expecting from your financial planner too. And believe me, we can really relate. One of our planners vacated his house in a canoe. So we understand. We get it. And we have sympathy and empathy. And we are wanting to make sure we're providing you the services and support that you need, even as we deal with the disruption ourselves. And what about automobiles? A million vehicles, it is now being said, were damaged or destroyed by Harvey. So here's what happens. Your insurance company is going to take a look at your vehicle, which was underwater, and they're going to write you a check either for the value of that car or for the replacement cost of a new car. And the insurance company 
will take that car away, the old one. But what do you suppose happens to that car? It doesn't go into a junkyard. The insurance company will drain the water out of it and then sell it at an auction of wholesalers who are in the business of buying junked cars. And what will the wholesalers do? They will reupholster the car. They will repaint the car. They will dress it up to make it look as good as possible. And then they will sell the car to car dealers, who in turn will sell the car to people like you who are in the market for used cars. So you have to be very careful that you never purchase a used car that has been through a flood. These cars are disasters. They could be literally rotting from the inside out. Electrical systems non-functioning, rust pervasive, mold within the carpeting and upholstery of the vehicle. So what you got to do is go to Carfax.com. Now, I don't normally endorse or promote or cite commercial enterprises, but Carfax.com has just set up, as a result of Harvey and now with Irma, a free program. If you go to Carfax.com slash flood, you can check a vehicle's history online for free. Carfax is waiving their fees for doing this. I do want to emphasize it's a commercial enterprise. They may try to sell you something or give you promotional stuff or whatever. I don't know what they're going to do, but you can get for free the vehicle's history report. So if you go to a used car dealership and you're looking at a used car, you need to check out the vehicle. You need to have an independent mechanic inspect the vehicle. You need to sniff the car for musty smells. That suggests water has been there. Pull back the carpet looking for water or mud, indicating that this car went through a flood. Make sure the power locks and the windows work. If they don't, there could be electrical damage. Look at the headlights and taillights. There might be water still inside, indicating the car at one point was submerged. Look for rust what will be forewarned. That takes a little time to show up. You don't want to buy a used car that has experienced a flood. And these cars, by the hundreds of thousands, will appear on the market, not just in Texas, but all around the country, because these dealers ship them to parts all around the U.S. where people aren't suspecting that they're dealing with a used car that had been flooded. Be very, very careful in weeks and months to come if you are in the car market. I'm Rick Edelman. We have a lot more financial advice and information. Go to our website. I have four five, six, I don't even know how many articles I've got. Seven things you should know about your homeowner's policy. Four mistakes you need to avoid when helping victims of natural disaster. Will you be covered when disaster strikes again? Are you prepared for the next emergency? And do you have earthquake and flood insurance? All of these articles available for you for free at our website at rickedelman.com. And on the site, search for the word disaster. You'll find these articles and a ton more information that we have available for you for free to help you get the knowledge and information you need to survive this disaster and those that are sure to follow. That's rickedelman.com and search for the word disaster. When we come back on the program, two really important messages I want to continue sharing with you. Number one the Red Cross, and donating in general to the victims of these disasters. And number two, your investment strategy. All of that 
and your phone calls coming up here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, online at ricedelman.com. Go to rickedelman.com for those articles I just mentioned. Get the education and information you need to be protected against natural disaster. Stay with us for more. More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. We're talking about the aftermath of Harvey and Irma and uh, the wildfires in California. I say aftermath as though these things ever go away. If you know, they, they just change the names, don't they? They change the locations and dates, but these things are ever-present. A lot of folks are making a lot of donations. God bless you for doing that. Here at Edelman Financial, we're doing an awful lot in support of this as well, as you would fully expect us to do as your community supporter. And American Red Cross gets an awful lot of donations, and in my opinion, rightfully so. The American Red Cross is one of the most important strategic providers of disaster care when we encounter situations like this. And they've gotten a little criticism lately, and I think it's completely unfounded and why I want to bring it to your attention. One of the pieces of criticism they've gotten is that a significant percentage of their donations go to administrative services. That is not accurate. They don't have an inappropriate or disproportionate amount of money going to administrative services. And quite frankly, they operate as an efficient, effective, financially responsible organization. What the Red Cross is capable of doing, which other organizations cannot, is mobilize in a massive way far greater than other folks can do this. They're able to shelter in Florida more than 120,000 people. They have 80 emergency response vehicles on standby supporting the response. They've already prepositioned before Irma hit land in Florida 100,000 meals. Shelf stable, ready to go as needed. So when you're thinking about donating money to a local organization that is a good organization, do they have the manpower? Do they have the infrastructure? Do they have the mobility? Do they have the experience? Do they have the contacts to be able to make it happen right away? That is the value, in my view, of the American Red Cross in dealing with a disaster of this type. Are they the only charity you should be supporting? No. One final comment about your charitable support of the disaster victims. Please, this is going to be weird. It's going to sound counterintuitive. When you make a donation to any of these organizations, do not tell them that it is for Harvey. Do not tell them it is for Irma. Why? Because if you say to the American Red Cross or any other organization like Goodwill or United Way or any of the other groups you may be considering making a donation to, if you specifically say to them that your donation is for the support of the victims of Harvey or Irma, they legally are required to use the money for those victims. They can't send the money to California wildfire victims. They can't send the money to a homeless shelter in Chicago. They can't send the money to drug-addicted children in Maine because you told them to use the money for Harvey or for Irma. If you believe in the American Red Cross or the United Way or Goodwill Industries enough to give them your money, 
then also give them your trust and your faith that they know how best to use the money. You would be amazed at how much money is set aside in endowment funds and segregated accounts for disasters of 10 years ago that is no longer needed, but which can't be used for other purposes because they were designated for a specific relief effort. Don't hamstring the charities. I know you are focusing on Irma and Harvey this week, but in six months, it's going to be something else. Let them use the money as they know best to deploy it. To make a donation via the Red Cross, simply go to redcross.org. So now, here we are. We've talked a lot about the victims of these disasters, and we've talked about your selfless charitable support and volunteerism in helping those victims and their families and the communities at large. Now I want to talk a little about you. And so the question I want to ask you is, how are you doing? How are you faring in the face of these astonishing news stories, the video clips we're seeing, not just of these horrific floods and wildfires, but of missile launches out of North Korea. There's an awful lot of concern over the past couple of weeks about what might happen next. What could be the economic impact? Let's, let's set aside the far more important human toll and impact and just focus, since this is, after all, a show about money, let's talk about the financial impact of something that might occur from the next natural disaster or something astonishingly crazy out of North Korea or another terrorist attack domestically, what does this mean for your investment portfolio? What does it mean for your financial strategy? That is what we're going to talk about next here on The Rick Edelman Show because I've got a really important message for you about your asset allocation, your investment management decision, I want to make sure you're prepared and doing it right. So stay with us to hear this vital message about your portfolio. Triple H Plan Rick online at ricedelman.com. Stay with us. with the founder of one of the nation's largest independent investment advisory firms coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. How apropos, Monday is September 11th, and it is uh, Patriot Day and National Day of Service and Remembrance of the September 11th terrorist attacks in the midst of dealing with Irma and Harvey and wildfires in California and who knows what other natural disaster or terrorist attack we'll be contending with next. And we have to make sure that we're ready. You need to make sure you're ready with your investment strategy of how you're going to respond. And I want to just cite something really important. We've been enjoying, not just for the past eight years, an incredibly uh, exciting performance in the stock market where stock prices have more than tripled since the, the low point in March of 2009. We have experienced over the past year or more extraordinarily low levels of volatility. I don't know if you've even noticed. I've talked about it on the show over the past couple of months that the stock market has not been volatile at all. 
You haven't seen hundreds of points in the Dow rising or falling on a given day. It's been 30 points here, 50 points there, 20 points here, and it's been very quiet. But it's not always like that. It's not even normally like that. Normally, there's much more volatility in the markets. There's increasing concern, partly because of the economic fallout of these recent natural disasters and the saber-rattling going on with North Korea and lots of social debates throughout our nation, and I don't have to list them all for you. You know them as well as I do. It's causing investor confidence to weaken. Financial Planning Magazine has a monthly confidence of financial advisors, and the reading, you know, 50 is the baseline. If the reading is above 50, it means conditions are improving. Below 50, it means that advisors believe the conditions are deteriorating. In June, it was 56, a really good sign. But in July, it fell 10 points to 46, the biggest decline in more than a year, and the first time that we've been in negative territory since last year's presidential election. In other words, advisors are getting more bearish. So here's what one advisor said, because as you talk with a financial advisor, they may scare you. They may say, due to these natural disasters, due to the saber-rattling of North Korea, you need to make changes in your portfolio. And I'm here to tell you that it's nonsense. And here's an example of it. Here's one guy who publishes an investment newsletter. Been doing it for a couple of decades. Highly regarded guy. Here's what he said. Quote, ever since the dot-com bubble burst 17 years ago, the central banks of the world have engaged in an increasingly desperate effort to stave off a generalized credit collapse. Stock prices will plunge. High-grade bond yields will sink to multi-decade lows. And the Janet Yellens of the world will be casting about for emergency measures to stave off the third financial crisis of the new millennium. That's what this guy just wrote. With a message like that, you would think he's extraordinarily bearish, very, very scared. Here's what he said to his subscribers. Because of his fears of a stock market that is going to plunge with bonds sinking to multi-decade lows, he says he's cutting his stock exposure. Are you ready for this? From 60% to 58. Are you kidding me? We're going from 60 to 58. That's his Armageddon solution. My message to you is very simple. You are going to hear an increasing cacophony of people claiming fear. They're going to cite as examples all the things I've just cited for you. My message to you is to ignore all that noise. Stick with your long-term strategy. And if you're not confident that your long-term strategy is correct, that your portfolio is designed to sustain the storms and have long-term success, call us. Now, before the next headline occurs, call us at AAA to plan Rick and let us help you like we've helped thousands of folks just like you. Go to rickedelman.com, click that red button. I want to talk with an advisor. We're here to help you. And that's what uh, folks are doing on the telephone as well. That's what John did. He called us from West Simsbury, Connecticut. John, you're on the air. How can we help you? Hello, Rick. Hello, Brandon. Thanks for taking my call. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Well, I'm so glad you dialed um, us up. How can we help? Yeah, I look forward to every every session uh, over the last number of years. Uh, my wife and I, are we're in our, our mid-50s. Uh, we've accumulated a reasonable nest egg, which is pre- predominantly invested in the largest uh, mutual fund company, low cost 
of course, and it's ever becoming increasingly difficult and more and more complicated with ETFs and and sector funds and and international and domestic and you know trying to navigate for the for retirement in the future which is still hopefully quite quite a few years off um you know what's the best allocation when you look at uh, since the market has has had a nice run here over the last number of years and you can't predict the future of course but you know, I think we're more invested probably domestically versus internationally. But I also know, you know, sometimes you recommend different sector funds also. John's asking, I think, what, Brandon, is the most fundamental of all investor questions. What should my asset allocation be? And it's colored whenever people ask the question by what's going on in the environment at the moment. At the moment, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 Stock Index are at or near all-time highs. We are in year nine of our uh, bull market, and people are wondering how much longer will prices continue to rise? What happens if something goes wrong? We've got issues uh, dealing with hurricanes and forest fires and North Korea and, you know, the list goes on and on and on about the issues that our nation is facing, um, not to mention terrorism. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. In the face of all of this, people are asking the question, how should I invest my money today? What's the best answer you can provide? You're not going to like it because it's it's <laughs> the answer is it depends. I mean, and John, you want something more specific than that, but in good conscience, I can't give it to you, right? There's no way for me to be able to look through the, the uh, radio lines and, and get a glimpse of you and your life and your family and what your goals are and what your situations are, what your fears are, what it is you're trying to accomplish to tell you how to invest. And you're saying, so those are all the criteria that determine what the answer depends on. And I'd say, but a few, right? right? right. So Rick is right that it's the investments that probably people worry about most. But in order to give advice on the investments, I want to do a retirement projection to take a look at what your retirement goals are to determine, are you on pace for pulling off what you're trying to pull off? But I also want to look at different types of risk that could throw us off track. So that means insurance and estate planning and the like. You need to look at whether you've got kids or grandkids and how they're going to impact what your plan is. And so another thing that makes this harder, though, um, Rick and John, is age. Because when somebody first starts to invest for their retirement, let's say they're in their 20s, they haven't accumulated anything yet. So they're really just deciding, okay, how much am I going to do to my plan through work? But how much harder does it get, John, in your case, that you've been saving and investing for decades? So all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, gosh, I've accumulated a lot of money. In other words, it does get harder. You mentioned that there are different or newer investment options today than there were, say, 20 years ago. And so- You know, that's the the question is the right one. The question is the simple one. But it is a struggle for us over uh, the telephone and on the radio to give you the answer that you're seeking. But I will add this. I agree with everything, Brandon, with what you just said. I will add two points. Number one, I think that many people are more conservative than they need to be, meaning they are more worried about what's going on than they need to be. And they are, by extension, point number two, focusing a little too much on the recent past and trying to make a long-term future decision based on what has recently occurred. So 
excellent point. And how does this impact John? One thing that happens as we approach retirement, pretend we're five years from retirement. It's not that uncommon for people to say to themselves, gosh, in five years, I need to start income. I'm going to actually withdraw money from my accounts. And all of a sudden, a light goes off that five years is their investment horizon. That's their time frame. But in reality, that couldn't be farther from the truth, because as we show somebody in a meeting how you actually provide income through retirement, guess what happens? We're talking about a retirement span that is very likely multiple decades. And when it is that long, what happens is you're taking small amounts out every single year. You're almost dribbling income out. So a very common mistake that people make approaching retirement or hitting retirement is to do just what Rick said, which is all of a sudden become too conservative and lose sight of the fact that your goals are going to extend a heck of a long time past that retirement date. Very good. Great answers. I think uh, my best approach is to give someone in one of your offices a call. Try to sit down and look at look at the whole program comprehensively because we have at least 10, 10 years, at least until official retirement age. And obviously, like you had mentioned, there's another potential 20 years that we could uh, live and hopefully live and, and beyond. And, you know, you can't be too conservative. Uh, that's a little bit more of a time horizon than certainly uh, someone that's uh, it's quite a bit older as, as compared to someone that's like you mentioned, 20, 25 years. 25 years old entering the workplace and you know they don't have to think about it they can take 100% risk because they got the time behind there uh, and that's why it becomes back. so much more important for you to deal with this now your timing is perfect your situation is perfect your questions are perfect and we'd be really honored to assist you we've got an office uh, in Connecticut so we're right around the corner from you and very happy to help just call us at triple eight plan Rick like you did today and we'll set you up with uh, one of our colleagues and take care of all of this for you Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, look forward to many more years of listening to your program. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Sean. We appreciate your phone call. I'm Rick Edelman in with Brandon Corso here on The Rick Edelman Show. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. More with the host of the PBS TV series, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. The Rick Edelman Show continues, Triple Eight Plan Rick. I'm in the studio here with Brandon Corso, financial planner at Edelman Financial Services, one of our 160-odd financial plan. No, I don't mean that our financial planners are odd, but we have – never mind. You know what I mean. I'm not odd. No, you're not, you're not okay. odd. You're, you're, okay. you're, you're, uh, I'm fun. You're an end. Remember that old George Carlin joke? Um, you got 123 odds and ends on the table and 122 of them roll off. What do you have left, an odd or an end? I'm well, the end. You're an end. Okay. You're not an I'll odd. Take you're it. an end. Uh, so we're heading off to Chevrolet, Maryland uh, to talk with Dee. Hello, Dee. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you so much for taking my call. Oh, our pleasure. How can we help? I first want to thank you for all that you do with, uh, with public television, the Girls and Boys Club, your podcast, your seminars, your website, and your radio show. I listen and or watch all. So thanks so much for your support. Oh, well, you're very welcome. I appreciate your comments. I will be 50 this year, and I am trying to figure out how important it is for me to invest in a financial planner when I don't have the traditional responsibilities of someone my age. So I've never been married. 
I have no children. I have no siblings. Uh, my father passed many years ago. My mother's in an assisted living facility. She has dementia. I do have a 401k plan that has about 250000 in it. I have some savings. I have no student loans, and I have no credit card debt. How about a mortgage? I, I do have a mortgage. What's the value of your house? Um, it's probably about one sixty-five, one hundred sixty-five. And what's the mortgage balance? One hundred twelve. Okay, and you said you had two hundred fifty thousand dollars plus other savings. How much in other savings? About thirty thousand. Okay, and you're still working, yes? Yes. And what's your annual income? Um, right now, I'm part time, so it's probably about twenty thousand. And what is your uh, monthly expenses? Oh, about twelve hundred. So you're in really good financial condition. Did you know that? No. Brandon, explain. (laughs) Oh, and I love this, Dee, because when Rick said you're in really good financial condition, how he's gleaning that is by looking at a number of things. But I want to focus on the income and the expenses. Because you have a relatively small income at this point. You say you're working part-time. The annual income's around $20,000. But if your expenses are lower than your income or around the same number, then your chances of succeeding both pre-retirement and post-retirement are so much higher. Because we'll hear from people that have higher incomes than you, but they don't have enough income. Their expenses are higher than their income. So you've accumulated... Uh, a large amount of money, especially, I'll add, for the level of expenses you have. So you mentioned you're part-time. Do you plan to stay part-time, or do you anticipate going back full-time? I anticipate going back full-time. And I'll take it a step further. With $250,000 of investments and no heirs to be concerned about, no surviving spouse to have to protect, D is capable of generating 12 grand a year, a thousand bucks a month off of her investments. And we haven't even taken into consideration social security, which she'll be eligible for in 12 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And when you factor all of that in, along with the fact that she owns a home and is paying down the mortgage over the next 10, 15 years, that mortgage will continue to get paid down. The value of the house likely will continue to grow. I think that, D, you're in excellent financial condition. I'm not saying that past performance indicates future results or that you won't ever experience volatility, but I don't think you need to be terribly concerned about running out of money based on your lifestyle. Now, the only major wrinkle would be the potential for long-term care costs. Right, okay. You've seen this with your mom, who is in... uh, a facility at this point and you see the expenses right. that she's incurring. Yes. So yes. it would make sense, Brandon, do you not think uh, for D to consider a long-term care insurance policy? I do. I do. Um, it's interesting when we talk to people about long-term care risks, so often their attitude is impacted by whether or not they've seen it impact primarily their parents. Right. But if it's not their parents, another loved one or family member. And so, you know, D, you've seen it. I think you mentioned your mom um, has Alzheimer's. And so, you know what the expenses can be. So I do think it makes sense for you to consider. Um, I don't know for sure that it makes sense for you to get a policy. We'd have to identify the different types of policies, the pros and cons of each to determine, okay, which might make the most sense for you. But as you make your list of all the things that financially you need to take care of, 
uh, this is certainly something to have on the list. Okay. Let me change gears just a little bit, Dee. Um, are you involved with your mom? Have you helped her find the right um, facility? Are you visiting? What level of engagement do you have there? Yes, all of that. All so of that. I played an instrumental part in um, getting her to the facility that she's at at the moment. And so I can only imagine you've spent a lot of time, a lot of love. Spent, yes. Okay. Yes. So yes. we hear that. And so you love your mom dearly, and you've been incredibly helpful to her. I want you to fast forward and think down the road, because you did mention that you uh, are not married and you don't have children. Right. I want right. you to make sure you are picking a good advocate for yourself, because whether, God forbid, something happens uh, before retirement, like right. uh, you know a stroke uh, or something later in your life, if you need help um, and you can't handle your own financial affairs uh, and beyond just the finances, your affairs in general— You've got to have a good advocate. And so as we see people who don't have, you know, the family and children like you, it's something right. that we kind of stress. You've got to have an advocate. So you've got to have documents in place. You have to keep them current. You have to communicate with who you've selected to make sure, again, if you ever need somebody that is going to truly look out for your best interest, those people and those documents are in place. And you're talking about a medical directive, durable powers of right. attorney, health care powers okay. of attorney, and, and the like. So it's a big part of the estate planning conversation. In addition to the investment management conversation, the long-term care evaluation, all of that very, very crucial for you. Um, and bottom line is, Dee, you're in great shape right now. In fact, you're so good, you're going to get the applause of the day. <laughs> Um, you're really, really in excellent shape. You're doing everything right. And now we just want to make sure we tweak the plan correctly to make sure it stays that way. Um, you're in Chevrolet, Maryland. We've got offices in Silver Spring, Maryland, not far from you. Happy to help you out and make sure we can implement all these for you to give you and help make sure you enjoy the peace of mind that you uh, richly deserve. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome, Dee. Just call us at 888-PLAN-RICK so we can help you, and we'd be honored to do so. I will do that. Thanks so much for your phone call. I'm Rick Edelman in with Brandon Corso here on the Rick Edelman Show, Triple Eight Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. Stay with us. Providing personal finance advice for over 25 years, this is the Rick Edelman Show. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Thanks for hanging around this half hour. And uh, last hour, you may recall, I talked with you a little bit about investment strategy and the importance of dealing with your portfolio correctly. And I, I, I told you that you are likely to experience two things over the next coming weeks and months. Number one, an increase in volatility in the markets. And number two an increase in the noise of pundits and prognosticators trying to scare you about what they say is going to be coming next. Because the stock market has been rising pretty steadily since 2009, eight plus years and counting. We have seen very low volatility in the markets for well more than a year. And yet at the moment, we're dealing with massive economic losses by Harvey and Irma wildfires in California, and there's new fears because of what's going on with North Korea. And I'm not even going to bother mentioning all the social issues, 
dominating the news here at home. There's always the threat of a terrorist attack coming. We never know what's going to come tomorrow. And as a result, people you will discover are going to exploit these fears and try to get you to subscribe to their newsletter, buy their software, attend their seminar, sign up for their money management service. They're going to try to manipulate you emotionally. And I want to make sure you don't fall for it. But there are a couple of important messages along the way that I want to elaborate on. Number one, you do need to make sure that you have a long-term investment horizon. It's possible that perhaps you don't. And perhaps it's possible that you're right about not having a long-term investment horizon. You might be accumulating a lot of money to pay for college in the next couple of years. Maybe you're planning to buy a home. Maybe you're starting a business. Maybe you see major medical expenses for a parent headed your way. For lots of reasons, you might not have a long-term investment horizon. And if that's true, you shouldn't be investing in places like the stock market. Not if you're planning to spend that money in the next one or two or three years. Long-term means beyond three years. If you are thinking you're not going to touch your money for three years, five years, 10, 20, then that money is money you can remain invested. Not necessarily in the stock market, perhaps in other asset classes, like bonds, government securities, real estate, precious metals, natural resources, exponential technologies, there's a wide variety of asset classes and market sectors. I'm not trying to make a case solely for stocks. I'm simply suggesting that if you are going to invest in an asset that is exposed to volatility, whose values fluctuate, the best way to indemnify yourself against such fluctuation is time. But you need lots of time because the more time you have, the lower the likelihood of a loss. It can take decades. It can take years, not just days or weeks or months. And you have to have that time to be able to survive it. And that's the real point. So think carefully about your expected use of money. Is it possible you might need to touch this money within a year or two or three? And I don't just mean planned expenses like you know you're going to be buying a new car or paying for tuition. I mean unexpected expenses. Is it possible you might have a job loss? Is it possible there might be a medical crisis? Is it possible there could be a marital crisis? Is it possible there could be a family issue? If any of those things might occur, you need to make sure you have ample cash reserves to get you through that crisis. This is why we generally advise our clients to have as much as two years worth of spending in cash, in a bank account, savings account or checking account or bank CDs or treasury bills, somewhere where the money is safe, it's liquid and available whenever you might happen to need it. Now, notice I said one or two years of spending. That's not the same as income. If you make 100 grand a year, you don't need 200 grand in cash because think about how much money you spend or if you had some kind of a crisis, how much money you would truly need to be spending. It's an awful lot less than your gross annual income. So think about that number. And if you can't figure out how much you truly do need in reserves, call us. Let us help you figure it out. 888-PLAN-RIC. It's one of the key services we provide to our clients as financial planners, helping you figure out how much money you need to have in reserves and helping you figure out where to store those reserves. 
What institution should the money be kept at? That's a key component of a financial plan. And then once we've taken care of the cash reserves, we can now focus on your long-term investment strategy. And this is the other piece of the puzzle. You have to make sure that you and your spouse or partner have the wherewithal emotionally, psychologically, attitudinally to be willing to tolerate the volatility if and when it returns. It's not enough for you to be saying in 2006, I'm not going to touch the money for 10 years. You also have to be able to say, if we get to 2008 and prices fall 50%, I won't panic and sell. Because if you do panic and sell, you'll be your own worst enemy. You'll be defeating the goal. And that's the real key. You have to decide right now, are you willing to sustain, maintain, and support the investment strategy you are already developing? Because if you're not willing to do it, then stop now. You don't want to sell in 08. You either want to sell in 06 because you're not going to be able to handle 08, or you're going to wait to sell in 2010 or 2015 after the recovery has occurred. You see my point? You can't, look, you got to decide right now how you're going to handle the airplane. Either don't get on board or get on board and wait till it lands. You can't change your mind in the middle of a flight. Bad things will happen. Does that make sense? Decide right now. Now, very often, it's difficult for people to figure that out and make that decision. Why? Because as you're asking yourself this question, you're engaging, hopefully with your spouse or partner, you're engaging in an intellectual conversation. And it's impossible to effectively come up with an answer that way. Why? Because panic isn't intellect. It's emotional. It's sort of what I say to people, I often ask them this question, have you ever been mugged? And if they say no, I say, how will you react if you do get mugged? Nobody can ever answer that question effectively. I've had people who have been mugged tell me of reactions that they never would have guessed they'd had. I had one client tell me that he reacted with laughter. It's a psychological reflex that is uncontrollable. Some people react with anger others with fear, others with shock, some faint. He reacted with laughter. How can you know how you react emotionally to an environment you have never yet experienced? How do you overcome this? How do you deal with this? You talk to people who do have the experience. We've gone through the crash of 87. We went through the recession of 92. We went through the bubble blow up of the tech market in 01. We went through 9-11. We went through the credit crisis of 08. You may not have gone through all of these times, but we have. And we've done it with thousands of our clients. We've experienced alongside of our clients the wide range of emotional reactions that people have. We can help provide to you the benefit 
of our experience and our guidance to help you determine whether or not you are likely to have the wherewithal to hang in there with your seat buckled through the turbulence so that you can end up landing safely at your destination. Or we may say, dude, you're going to take a train. Forget about getting on board that aircraft. Let us help you figure this out. You need to do it now before the crisis begins, before you read a headline or see a video on the news. Call us now at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or visit us online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. And click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. Don't go through this alone. Let us be your guide. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money. Stay with us. More with the publisher of the newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Uh, one of the big questions investors have is, how should I be allocating my assets? How should I be splitting up my money among different investment sectors? And one big common question is, should I have some money invested internationally? Should I own foreign stocks or mutual funds or exchange-traded funds that invest in foreign stocks? Our answer is yes. We typically recommend that a client have as much as 20% of their investments in foreign securities. I say as much as. For many clients, it's a whole lot less, some even none. It depends on your situation and circumstances. If you want to know the proper amount for you, call us at 888-PLAN-RICK and let us take a look at you and your situation, your circumstances, and we'll tell you the proper amount invested in foreign securities are not based on your situation. But having said that, you've got to be really careful when you do seek to invest in exchange-traded funds or mutual funds of foreign countries, because we have a distorted view here in the United States when it comes to investing. Why do I say a distorted view? We kind of forget sometimes that we are the world's biggest economy, the world's number one economic powerhouse, and that no other nation has what we have. Among other things, we have about 4,000 stocks listed publicly on U.S. stock exchanges, like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. That's not true for other countries. Let me give you an example. According to a recent study by the Financial Analyst Journal, several ETFs invest only in South Korea. That's the only country where they buy stocks. There are several exchange-traded funds that do this. And several of them have 20% of their assets or more in just one stock, Samsung. Because Samsung is a huge company. It's the largest company in South Korea. And so you might be saying to yourself, I want to own a diversified portfolio. And that means I'm going to invest in foreign countries, including South Korea, only to discover $1 out of five is invested in a single stock. We would never advise you to put 20% of your money in a single stock. We wouldn't have you do more than 3% of your money in a single stock. And even that is too much. So you need to be careful about the investment strategy you're using. Don't judge a book by its cover. And if you need help with evaluating the mutual funds you own, 
give us a call, 888-PLAN-RICK. Or online, visit us at rickedelman.com. Click that red button, I want to talk to an advisor. And right now, let's go have a conversation with Loveline Sidhu. She and I had a conversation at the Exponential Finance Conference back in June. She's the co-founder of Bank Mobile, a completely digital bank offering completely free checking accounts. Let's listen to our conversation. Banks must not like you very much. <laughs> well, we really set out um, to be a disruptor in the banking space because we thought that there's such a need right now in terms of consumer needs and behaviors changing with people walking into a bank branch only one to two times a year, but interacting with their bank on their mobile devices 20 to 30 times a month, wow. right? And you're also seeing people getting frustrated and moving from their banking relationship, 50% of the cases because they're tired of the, the fees being charged. And in America, $33 billion a year is being charged in just overdraft fees. So how is it that you're able to offer free banking services? Exactly. So what we've done is to be able to utilize technology to replace the inefficient branch networks that exist today for customer acquisition. And by being able to lower our costs, we're now able to profitably serve a customer base such as millennials and the underbanked in an affordable way since they've traditionally not been served because they're not profitable. But if you're not charging any fees for a checking account, what's yep. the revenue source? Yeah, so the way that we make money is that we, when every time someone swipes their debit card, uh, we get an interchange fee. And that's something that the merchant gives the credit card companies and the banks. And what's the uh, total assets that uh, are in those accounts? We're close to a billion dollars in assets. And uh, tell me, what uh, sets you apart from other banks that are trying to engage in mobile technology and online services? Yeah, so it's two things. So one is more from the business model front. So today, bank branches are opening one net new checking account per branch per week. We're opening 10,000 a week. And that's by being able to replace branches with technology. And so we're able to acquire customers at high volume and at very low cost. We're acquiring customers at essentially $0 a customer, which is unheard of in really any industry. So from a business front, we really disrupted the model um, instead of having bank branches. On the consumer front, it's really about creating the most effortless experience, utilizing technology, biometrics, data analytics, to make banking as simple, as fast, um, as easy as possible. And that's really the direction that we're going. Your bank is FDIC insured? 100%. Uh, because that's going to be a natural question for consumers wondering how safe is the yes, bank. for sure. Since they can't go visit it. It's one of the Thank reasons you. they love brick and mortar. They can go visit their money, even though, of course, the money's not really there. 100%. And also investing in security and cybersecurity. It's a growing threat. Um, and making sure that people feel secure. We have a very robust process for authentication and fraud detection. Um, and on top of that, the FDIC insurance. So you're offering checking accounts? Savings accounts, joint accounts, line of credit um, to start with. And we're opening up to personal loans and credit cards in the next two months. Certificates of deposit? Uh, no, we just have our savings account. And we guarantee it to be at least uh, 25 basis points higher than the largest four banks. Which is one quarter of 1%. Correct. Better than? Than the Wells Fargo's of the world um, that are at 0.01% today. So what is the implication of what you're doing as disruptive as it is in the banking industry? What's the implication for the banking industry? Yeah, I think that you know, for, for bigger banks, it's really about figuring out how you can reduce the cost structure with these bank branches that exist today 
to find a better uh, customer acquisition vehicle because today bank branches aren't cutting it and it's a very geography-based sort of customer acquisition um, strategy. Two, it's really investing in technology to be able to create this effortless experience. People are making headway, but I think people in general still don't like their banking experience. They feel it's frustrating. Um, they feel there's a lack of transparency in fees, et cetera. So you really have to start putting the customer first, become customer obsessed, and that's when the consumers are going to start being attracted to your banking experience. So uh, you're uh, hearing from Lovleen Sidhu, who is the co-founder, president, and chief strategy officer at Bank Mobile, and giving you an indication of how exponential technologies are changing one of the most fundamental businesses in America, the one we all love to hate, banking. Lovleen, thanks so much. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Lovleen Sidhu of Bank Mobile. I'm Rick Edelman, and when we come back, an important new study with powerful implications for your investment decisions. I'll tell you what it is when we come back. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Stay with us. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. For free articles on personal finance, sign up for Rick's email update at rickedelman.com. When I last left you before the break, I told you I would share with you the results of a new study that has a huge implication for your investment strategy. This study comes out of Arizona State University, an examination of 26,000 stocks in the United States dating back to 1926. Now, many of these stocks, of course, no longer exist. They come and go over time. The average company lasts about 65 years since 1926 on average. The life of a stock today is much less, only about 15 years according to academic studies. But set that aside, since 1926, there have been 26,000 stocks in the United States. Do stocks beat U.S. Treasuries in their total return? Which makes more money, stocks or Treasuries? Now, you were probably like everybody else who says, well, it's obvious. Everybody knows the answer to that question. Stocks make more money than Treasury bills. And you're right. If you take a look at the stock market index and compare the results of the S&P 500 index or the Dow Jones Industrial Average or any other major market indice, you'll see that they indeed do, on a year-by-year basis, beat the returns offered by U.S. Treasuries. If they didn't, nobody would ever invest in stocks, right? Why would you bother taking the risk if you didn't have the opportunity for the return? We all know this. It's the basic premise of investment strategy. But what this fascinating new study out of Arizona State University reveals is that of those 26,000 stocks over the past 91 years, only 4% of them are responsible for the total profits of the stock market. Only 4% of the 26,000. The other 96% collectively earned returns equal to that of U.S. Treasury bills. In other words, out of 26,000 stocks, 1,040 of them produced all the profits that you are so familiar with about the stock market. What is the message there for? Well, it's really simple. If I were to share with you 26,000 bricks 
telling you that underneath a thousand of them is a golden ticket, would you be able to select the thousand out of the 26,000? No, I don't think you can. I don't think I could. I don't think anybody could. And that's why it's important that you don't try. Don't try to pick the winner. The likelihood that you will succeed in picking the winner is highly unlikely. 4% out of the total. Instead, you should own all of them. If you own a highly diversified portfolio and maintain it for a long period, you dramatically increase the likelihood that you'll own the stocks that are responsible for the returns that you're seeking. It's called diversification. And this study from Arizona State proves to us yet again why it's so important. If you aren't sure how to properly diversify, call us at 888-PLAN-RIC and let us help you like we've helped so many folks just like you. I'm Rick Edelman. We're taking telephone calls at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742. Up next, Steve in Cornwall, New York. How are you doing, Steve? Hello. I'm glad you can take my call. Uh, my question involves a New York 529 plan that my wife and I have for our two children. Uh, we started the plan when they were very young. Uh, my wife opened up one plan and I opened up another, the main reason being I have a higher risk tolerance for investing than she does, so she put the, the money into a less uh, volatile you know, plan, and, and I was taking a little bit more risk. Well, both of my children are now old enough to go to college, though they are one grade apart. And, my son has decided at the present time is not going to college, but uh, he's doing other things. But my daughter is, has entered college. And my question is, uh, now that they are both out of high school, is it time to be more conservative with the investment? Or since the stock market has been going up and up and up, it seems, to uh, – to take more more risk. All right, first of all, what the stock market has been doing is completely irrelevant to this conversation, right? Because we don't know what the stock market is going to be doing next. What we have to recognize is that there has been and there will be, but there is no is. So you can't say the stock market is doing well. It has been doing well up until this moment, but that doesn't mean it will be doing well starting tomorrow. So we can only invest based on pragmatic emphasis on a long-term effective strategy of diversification. So with that aside, we now have to take the additional complication of the fact that this is a 529 college savings plan. And their primary complication, Brandon, associated with college savings accounts is what? That the money has to come out for education expenses post high school. In other words, there's a timing issue. So unlike any other investment account you might create where you take the money pretty much whenever you feel like it, 529 accounts dictate that you use the money specifically for qualified education expenses in the year they're incurred. So you have to ask yourself one question, Steve. How much are you spending for your daughter's college per year? Okay, well, what ended up happening was... Uh... My daughter entered uh, her freshman year, and we took money out to pay for the first semester. And unfortunately, due to health reasons, she had to withdraw before the semester ended, and uh, we couldn't get any of the money back. So she lost her first semester's uh, 
investment, really. So now she's at a local community college rather than a four-year college, which was a lot more expensive. And uh, it's only costing us about $3,000 a year. Semester, beg your pardon. All right. So if she's only spending six grand a year right now to go to school, and you have saved $99,000 in the account, we need to start spending that money right away. Because Uh at this pace, she's not going to spend all the money that you've accumulated. And all the money that she doesn't spend on college is ultimately going to be subject to taxes and penalties if it isn't used for those educational expenses. In other words, you've overfunded college, it appears. Well, we're hoping that my son might go back to college after a little while, but he has, at this point, has decided not to go to college. Understood. And the- so right. you've, you're in the, at the moment, you're in the scenario of having overfunded college savings. Mm-hmm. So all you can do at this point is to start to spend the money on your daughter's education, spend it right now. And Brandon, if they're going to spend money right now on college education funding, how should the money be invested? Safely. It shouldn't be invested. It can stay in the 529 plan, Steve, but it should be in a money market or CD type investment where if the market's down 6, 12, 18 months from now, guess what? That money won't be. I put the money into what's called a moderate age-based option income portfolio. That's what it's called. Okay. So you might want to go further. Moderate means to me probably something like 50% stocks, 50% fixed income. That's still a portfolio that can be down after a year, even two years. We often like to ask our clients, how much money do you think you're going to pull from the college account over the next two, maybe even three years? Especially if you think you've got all the money that you need in the account, there's no sense in taking risk to it. So I'd like you to project forward a couple years, maybe even three, whatever you think is going to come out for either of your kids, park it in cash. See, I want to highlight what Brandon just said, because he gave you the other half of the story that I began with. And it's really important you focus on this. I gave you the story of is being no is that don't focus on investment results. Don't look at the past performance of the market to gauge what your strategy ought to be. And don't make predictions about the future performance of the market in an effort to gauge what your investments ought to be, because nobody knows any of that at all. What we do know is what Brandon just said. We know how much money you're going to withdraw and when you're going to withdraw it. And the longer it's going to be before you make a withdrawal, the more risk we can reasonably afford to take. So if you were going to say to me, my kid is three, going to college in 15 years, but due to scholarships, won't even touch the savings until their junior year. Now, all of a sudden, we have not just 15 years, we have 18 years before we touch the money. With an 18-year time horizon, we can heavily emphasize more volatile investments like the stock market. But on the other hand, if your scenario is, my daughter's in college right now and we're spending tuition money this month, well, all of a sudden, due to a lack of a long-term time horizon, we have no choice but to emphasize cash for the portion of money we were going to distribute. So that's why Brandon emphasized, when are you going to spend the money? How are you spending it? And since you're spending it all right now, we have to go to cash. But let's take it a little step further. You are only spending six grand a year right now in your daughter's education. You have 99 grand set aside. So perhaps we invest the money in several different ways. 
we take 15 or 20 grand and set that aside in cash because we know she's going to be using at least that much over the next few years. The rest of the money perhaps might be able to be invested with a little bit more risk associated with it. But exactly what that mix ought to be, we would need to sit down and talk with you in much greater detail to get a much better sense of what are we likely to spend? When are we likely to spend it on which child? Because that matters due to account registration restrictions involved with the 529 program, as well as other implications on your personal spending, Steve, that of you and your wife, to make sure that we aren't spending so much emphasis on their college that we're putting at risk your retirement. All that makes sense? So I would encourage you to call us. Uh, you live uh, in New York. We have offices throughout uh, the state. I would encourage you to call us and let us spend a little more time with you and your wife to take a deeper look at what's going on with the family finances so that we can make sure the advice we're giving you is both comprehensive and in your best interests. Very good. Thank you so Thank much you for calling. Much. We really appreciate your phone call. That was Steve from Cornwall, New York, and he dialed triple eight plan Rick. You can do the very same to chat with us, set up an appointment, talk with one of our colleagues and see how we can help you. Just like we've helped lots of folks just like you. I'm Rick Edelman with Brandon Corso here on the Rick Edelman show. The truth about money, triple eight plan Rick online at ricedelman.com. For more information on what you need to do now, go to rickedelman.com. That's rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the program. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon Corso. We were just talking with Steve in the last segment about his uh, daughter going to college at a community school, spending only six grand a year to do so. He's amassed, however, $99,000 in a college savings account. And you wanted to elaborate on that, Brandon. So, Rick, that whole conversation was really about distribution planning. I mean, in Steve's case, he was trying to figure out what's the best way to distribute, and it's from college accounts. And whether it's college distributions or retirement distributions, these are things that really can trip people up. I mean, in some ways, we've all been saving for hopefully a long period of time. And we focused on what's the best way to save? What's the best account to save? How do I invest that money? But at some point, you reach that goal, whether it's college or retirement, and you've got to figure out what's the best way to distribute. And these are big decisions. And I will elaborate to say that there's a really big difference between distributing from college and retirement. And with college, the money comes about fast, usually four years thereabouts. With retirement, it might be four decades. And I see people making uh, assumptions that don't make sense, mistakes when it comes to distribution planning, and they're big, big decisions that have to be made. You know, it's really interesting. In our experience, as you pointed out, Brandon, people spend an awful lot of energy on how to contribute. How much money are you allowed to contribute to an IRA account per year, for example? What they don't pay a lot of attention to are the distribution rules. How do you pull the money out of the account? There's a huge emphasis on adding money to your IRA. You see these ads everywhere. When's the last time you saw an ad telling you about the distribution requirements of the account? 
you'd be hard pressed to find one. So it's it's a real issue, and and you're absolutely right, Brandon. And as a result of this, people don't realize the incredible complexity associated with the accounts they've created when it comes time to withdraw the money, which is why we emphasize so heavily in our financial planning practice, the importance of managing the distribution requirements. Otherwise, you could end up incurring taxes and tax penalties needlessly. And in the worst case scenario, those penalties can add up to over 90% of the amount of money you're supposed to withdraw and didn't, depending on the nature of the account. So it could be really brutal. So elaborate to a little bit, Brandon, along those lines, what is a classic mistake people make when it comes to distribution efforts? I'd say two come to mind. One is waiting too long to lower risk. And that's not really a distribution uh, requirement, Rick, but I wanted to throw it out there because it's important. It's staying far too risky too long, all the way up to attaining your goal, instead of gradually lowering risk as you um, get closer and closer. What's but, the motivation? What causes people to stay invested in stocks longer than they should? Oh, I'd say greed. And, you know, we're in an eight-year bull market. And so, you know, people understand that stocks go up a lot more than bonds or other safer investments. And in a period where stock prices are rising, it's hard to say, you know what, I'm going to shift down and lower risk a little bit. And so I think a financial advisor is is the right coach and team teammate to be able to say, look, if you're on pace to achieve your goals, this is the prudent thing to do. Let's stop taking so much risk. So taking too much risk with the portfolio, or rather taking risk without regard to the dates and deadlines that you're going to be withdrawing the money. Absolutely. What's another? So to your question about what are, what are the mistakes we see with distributions, uh, one is once you hit certain ages, you have to take money out of your retirement accounts. And I hate to see it, but we do see people who fail to take money out on time, and there are big penalties. The the And the bigger one is this. When you hit a goal, let's pretend retirement, as we all share that um, – goal, it, you have different types of accounts. But guess what? The tax treatment of all the accounts is different. And so you should look at what the rules are for each, how much money you have in each, how much income you need this year, next year, the year after, and figure out what is the best strategy to take income this year and what's it going to make sense to do next year. But you can take from the wrong account in a way that logically doesn't make sense. And you take steps backwards when you do that. Yeah, we've seen people take money from not only the wrong account, but failing to take money from all the accounts. Depending on where your retirement accounts are, you sometimes have to withdraw money from all of them, not just from any one of them. We've also seen people with um, make the withdrawal based on the wrong calculation. They look at the current value of the account instead of the value of the account last December 31. Or they take the withdrawal in the year that they have to but not doing it following their actual birth date, which can render moot the distribution that they had taken. Uh, all kinds of ridiculous pieces of fine print because people are not aware of the distribution rules. So uh, for all those reasons, it's really important that you are paying attention, not just to the asset allocation of your account, as vital as that is, you must also take a look at the account registration and the IRS rules associated with it and make sure beyond all else that you're dealing with a financial advisor who is skilled and knowledgeable about these accounts and provides the level of service necessary to keep you apprised to make sure that you're doing what you need to do when you need to do it in the way that you need to do it. That way you can help avoid issues that Steve's facing 
888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Hey, what are you doing to prepare for retirement? We want to help you discover the essential three keys so that you can enjoy a successful retirement. Managing the money in your IRAs and retirement accounts, maximizing your Social Security benefits, and protecting your assets. It's our seminar, Preparing for Retirement, IRAs, Social Security, and Naming Beneficiaries. This is the information you need to make sure your retirement is everything that you want it to be. It's just $15 a person, $25 a couple. The full schedule of where we're doing the seminar, when we're doing the seminar, is all available on our website at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. You can also call us at 888-PLAN-RICK, and we'll tell you when and where we're going to be. You can even register online and reserve seats for yourselves and your friends as well. And if you would like, we'll present the seminar for your organization. If you do lunch and learns at the office, if you are in a social or civic or community organization and you would love to have us come and present this to you for your organization, we'll be glad to do that for you at no cost. Just call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Let us help you like we've helped so many folks just like you. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money, and I'll see you again next week. Remember, if you love the show, tell a friend. If you hate the show, tell an enemy. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.